So, good afternoon. Many of you may be aware that um, this year uh, there have been a couple of outbreaks of measles in the United States, which is a little bit unusual because measles is a disease that had almost been completely eradicated. And um, it's kind of interesting that uh, the outbreaks have occurred in two very, very different places. One is um, in the yeshivish communities, in Hasidic communities in Brooklyn, Rockland County, and New Jersey. And the other is uh, in Northern California, uh, north of San Francisco, a place where, last I checked, there are very few Jews, let alone the yeshiva community. Um, but there's a common denominator between those two areas where there was, uh, where there's been a measles outbreak, which is that for various reasons, um, they don't believe in vac. There are groups of people in those communities that don't believe in vaccination. Uh, perhaps a little bit later in the talk, we'll allude to why that might be the case, but that's the common denominator. Just um, to give you a perspective, uh, for most of the last two decades in the United States as a whole, there have been under 100 cases of measles. And um, most of those have actually been people who've acquired, have come in from abroad, have acquired measles abroad and come into the United States. Um, but uh, in Brooklyn and Rockland in the past three months, there have been 200 cases of measles, which is more measles than there were in the entire United States in most years for the past couple of decades. So it's really a significant problem. And while um, people don't die of measles in the United States very much anymore because very few people get it, um, there was actually an estimate published today that 100,000 people will die worldwide from measles this year. So measles is a serious problem. So we'll spend a little bit of time today to talk about um, the halachic and the medical issues surrounding measles and its vaccine. But to start, um, let me ask you a couple of questions. So first of all, um, is it halachically mutter to skydive? Not in the army, but you know, for fun. Yes. Huh? To my cloak, right? Why? Right. Very good. So it depends on how you define what's considered dangerous. Uh, you could ask similar questions about smoking cigarettes or engaging in other sort of dangerous kind of behavior. So what's the source for, halachically, for um, not exposing yourself to danger? So it begins with tupsukim. So the first in Voskhanan, superficially, doesn't seem to be talking about physical danger. Raki shomer Be careful that you don't forget the nisim that happened to Dor Hamidbar. You should teach your children about it. Superficially, this is not talking about physical danger, it's talking about spiritual danger, but as we'll see, 
some of the Rishonim invoke this Pasa, to say that one is not allowed to put oneself in physical danger. The second Pasuk is also a Pasuk that requires some analysis to apply the kinds of cases that we just talked about, because the Pasuk is talking about a physical danger of falling off a roof. If you build a house with a flat roof, inserted as commentary, you have to put a fence around the roof. Don't place blood in your house when someone falls. So if we look at um, this particular Pasuk, we can see a couple of things. First of all, it seems to refer to specifically to one case. But the Rambam in reference 3 extends it to all physical dangers. If it's something that a person may fail in and get hurt, if you have a, a well or a pit in your property, whether there's water or not, you have to put something around it that's ten fachim high, or put a cover on it. Anything that's potentially life-threatening, it's a positive commandment to remove it, and to be careful, and to be careful about it. And the Rambam says that the basis of the mitzvah saseh is the first pasuk we looked at, Hishomer l'cha u'shmor nafshecha. If he didn't take it away and leaves the hazard. So there's a both a mitzvah say to protect yourself and a mitzvah So what the Rambam has done is he's extended the pshat and the pasuk talking only about a roof to other physical dangers and uh, saying that a person needs to be careful about these external physical dangers. It's not yet talking about behavior, but talking about external physical dangers. Um, the Chinuch um, actually learns the Psukim differently. In the Chinuch, there is both a mitzvah saseh and a mitzvah slo saseh, but both of them, the Chinuch derives from Kisiv Nebayas Chadash Vasisa they're both in Parshas Kiseitze. Um, and so the Chinuch, rather than making the leap of Hishomer Lechoshmonavshecha, which seems to be spiritual, instead extends the Makkah, the mitzvah sase of building a Makkah, to all physical dangers and protection from all physical dangers. Um, but the Shulchan Aruch extends it further than an external physical danger, because the Rambam is not talking about a behavior, he's talking about a physical obstacle that you might be exposed to. He's not talking about uh, whether you can skydive or even ski, and there's a posek in New York who says that you shouldn't ski because it's too dangerous. My own personal experience bears that out, unfortunately, but I do it anyway. It's not my, he's not my posek. So, um, so... Uh, Huh? It depends who you are, right? One of the problems is we don't really have a post like Hador, right? 
You know, uh, the joking aside, though, I think that actually is, you know, one of the challenges we have. You know, when Rav Moshe and the Rav were around, you know, they were accepted kind of as a poskador, uh, particularly Rav Moshe. Now, it's a little more diffuse. So when there are tough issues, it's hard to uh, it's harder to deal with them. And the same is true actually regarding medical halacha in Eretz Yisrael. Avram Steinberg, who wrote, won the Israel Prize for his book on medical halacha and has been involved in developing a lot of the medical halacha in Eretz Yisrael, said that he was very lucky that at the time that the tough decisions had to be made, you know, he had people who were universally accepted. You know, he'd go to Rosh Hashanah Zalman Arbach and ask Ashaila. And now, he said, if I had to do it now, it would be much more difficult because, you know, if I went to, uh, you know, one person, somebody else would say, no, 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 I don't agree. So it's a problem, actually, both in Eretz Israel and in the United States. So no, no criticism of the person you refer, were referring to, but, you know, it's just the way it is. It's not, you know, he's not universally accepted the way Rav Moshe was. So, uh, uh, so that diversion aside... Um, the Shulchan Aruch now extends this to medical issues. And he says the following in reference: Four tzarech lizaher militein maus befiv shemayeshalehem rok yavesh shalmocheshchin. You can't put coins in your mouth because there may be spit or other things from someone who has a disease. Shchin. Loyitein pas yado tachas shichio shemanoga yado bemtzora o besamra. Perhaps there was some poison or mitzora. So, obviously, the Shulchan Aruch was writing well before uh, Semmelweis and Pasteur, who developed the theory of germs. But from experience, uh, the Mechaber knew that people who are exposed to people who are sick get sick, not necessarily being able to ascribe it to an infectious agent that was identified, but understood the principle. Uh, and then he talks about not putting water in particular places, and if we, and a variety of other sorts of things. So, so the point is that the Shulchan Aruch has now extended this idea of a sisa makila gagecha from a physical external danger to behavior which puts you at risk. And um, three lines from the bottom of this reference, if there's pestilence in the city, you have to leave You have to leave early on. This is the Ramah. And you can't be so mechananes. Um, the Sefer Achinuch in discussing this principle, says the following. Obviously, we believe that Hashem ultimately controls everything. He uses the Gemara that talks about a person doesn't stub his thumb unless it's Xera. But he says that relying on a nace is applicable only to a few very special people like Avram with Kivshana Eish. For the rest of us, we can't be Somachan on and we have to engage in behavior that protects ourselves from dangers, halakhically. 
And Shulchan Aruch again in Chos Chos Mishpat Shmiras Hanefesh says V'chein Kol Michshos Yeshbos Hakanas Nefashos Mitzvas Asay Lasiru Lishama Mimenu V'Lizarber Davar Yafa Shenemar Hishamer L'Chavos Shmor Nafshecha. So and he talks about Bitel Mitzvas Asay V'Avar Below Samim Sasim Damim. So there's clearly an idea in Halacha that's very clear. At least one assay and a mitzvah slos assay of not putting yourself in danger. Now, getting back to the question that we talked about before, so how do you define danger? So we'll see that halachically, sometimes people there are some poskim who define danger as one in a thousand risk. But I would say that the more common halachic motif is to say what's considered unusually dangerous is what people do. And we'll see that, so what do I mean by that? It's dangerous to cross the street. It's dangerous to ride a bicycle. It's dangerous to drive a car. The people who, who die in accidents. It's dangerous to ride in a plane. So what risk can you take not to be over on a low sase and be mavatel and ase chiyuvis? So the answer seems to be halachically that whatever is considered a normal activity, what people normally do, that's considered danger that's acceptable. Yes? Is that a DNA activity or the amount of risk? So if you find like the most dangerous activity that we all do is just driving a car, and that is like more dangerous than, I don't know, skydiving, let's say, or bungee jumping, but people don't normally go bungee jumping, then, so again, is it like based on the massa or is it based on the risk? So the problem is the risk is very difficult to find to define. Why? So why? How many people die in a car or something? Okay, die? but how many of those people who die in a car are drunk? Okay. How many people uh, who die in a car are tired? It's actually almost all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're talking about a normal situation, how do you actually calculate the risk? So what's actually the risk of skiing? Well, you can look at how many people ski a year and how many people die, but it depends on your skill level what kind of skiing you do. It's very, very hard to say that I'm going to calculate a numerical risk for every activity. The best data we have are probably what we'll get to in medical issues. There you might be able to say you can calculate a risk. Uh, and we'll see some of that. But for most, for the general principle, um, it's hard to create a number. And therefore, most poskim suggest, and, and we'll see evidence for that, most poskim suggest if it's something that's a generally accepted activity, then it's mutter. If it's something that, you know, so evil can evil, right, for those of you who are old enough to know who that is, was a guy who used to jump over barrels of, uh, with a motorcycle, jump over barrels and cars, and eventually, unfortunately, passed away during one of these stunts, you know, trying to jump the Grand Canyon or something. But the point is, that would be halachat liyasr, clearly. Um, you know, walking across the street, as long as you're with the light, is halakhli mutter. But there's a broad spectrum in between those two kinds of activities where it's a real issue that has to be dealt with. So let's um, now turn to the medical issues where there's uh, an extensive halakhic literature from things other than vaccines to try to understand what the halakha is regarding medical issues. So if we begin, let's say, with reference nine, 
um, a question of can we force someone to undergo an operation? So someone has appendicitis. Not such a great example because there's now actually some data that you can try treating appendicitis with antibiotics, which is something that in, until a couple of years ago nobody did. But leaving that aside for a second, let's say, let's imagine it was a couple of years ago. Somebody has appendicitis. The question is, can you force them to have an operation? Of course, this particular example highlights the fact that we have to be very careful about what we assume is medical fact. But we'll see what the parameters for that are. If there's an operation that's required, the chances are the operation will succeed. We do the operation against his will. Except that forcing him will cause a greater danger. So if somebody says, I'm going to commit suicide if you operate on me, then maybe you would say that you wouldn't do it. But in general, the principle is, is that if it's clear that the operation is useful, then we f would force someone to have it done. By force, you know, in practical terms, we don't generally force people now unless it's such an egregious situation that an ethics committee in a hospital would view them as incompetent. But I think, you know, if somebody asked the Shiloh, do I have to have this operation, you would say, you must. So in reference eight, there's a summary of a couple of chuvos of Rav Moshe, where it um, extends past an operation to medication or treatment. You force a sick person to accept medical therapy if his refusal arises from his giving up hope. Even though in general we accept and honor somebody's wishes, which by the way is a radical chiddush of Rav Moshe, because if you look at re reference 6 and 7 you will see that's not universally accepted. But Rav Moshe held when it was possible, halachically, we do ask patients what they want. We don't accept a decision that arises from lack of careful thinking. When you're doing something silly, He's doing something that's not normally, that people don't normally do. It seems silly. We force him only, and you can see that kolorofim is in parentheses because it doesn't mean necessarily every single one. Physicians are human beings as well. We have some crazy people too. Um, one of them may be the governor of Virginia, but uh, uh, you know, just because you're a doctor doesn't mean that uh, you always do the right thing. Um, he's a neurosurgeon, by the way. So just to, for those who didn't know that. Um, so the bottom line here is that. You do force someone to take medical therapy if it's clear that it's going to help. So 
in reference 10, Rav Moshe, in a different tshuva, talks in more detail about the concern of side effects. In other words, suppose somebody says, um, I'm scared of the side effects, I don't want this medical therapy. What's the halacha? So this is particularly relevant in cancer therapy, because all cancer therapy is highly toxic. Um, and in some cases, though, uh, it's clear that the benefit outweigh the risk. So rather than reading the tshuva, let me give you sort of two examples. Hodgkin's disease is a kind of lymph node cancer that's very highly curable. But even for that, the therapy does have significant side effects. So if someone said, I don't want to be treated for Hodgkin's disease because the therapy has side effects, I don't want to expose them to side effects, Rob Moshe would suggest that you would force that person to undergo chemotherapy. On the other hand, if there's an experimental chemotherapy for lung cancer, which isn't going to represent a cure, but maybe will add one to two months of life, that's a case where you would respect patient autonomy and allow them to say, no, I don't want therapy. This is part of a whole larger issue, but the point is, in someone who is fatally ill, whether or not they meet the halachic um, definition of goses, most poskim will say, you know, you have to use regular measures, food, hydration, antibiotics, according to, to many, but not aggressive therapy if kolharofim, so to speak, say that there's no chance that their life will be saved. So that's a situation where you would respect patient autonomy, but if it's a situation where the benefits clearly outweigh the risks, you would force someone to have it done. Now, there's an interesting story about risks. There was a Rosh Hashiv in Eretz Yisrael who had something called an aneurysm, which is a dilatation of one of the main blood vessels in the body. It was the aortic aneurysm. And it's a situation where once it starts expanding, you pretty much know it's going to rupture. You don't know exactly when, but you pretty much know that it's going to rupture. So he went to, uh, this goes back about 20 years ago, he went to a physician there in Israel, and the physician told him, yes, you need the operation, because if you don't have the operation, you will almost certainly die. However, the operation has more than a 50% mortality. And he held that a situation where the operation had more than a 50% mortality, that was a cutoff that he, he was not required and perhaps even shouldn't do it. Now, the story ends well because he went to the United States. This was a time when medicine was less well-developed here. And he found a very experienced surgeon who said, I can do this operation for a lower mortality. He had the operation done and he recovered. But the point is, this was a situation where we're evaluating what's too much of a risk. His cutoff, I can't tell you that there was a huge halachic backup for this, but his cutoff was 50%. If there's more than 50% risk, not only don't you force someone to do it, but perhaps you shouldn't do it. So I'll stop here for a second before we start talking about measles and vaccines. Any questions at this point? Oh, sorry. Yeah, do, so these cases are, um, I mean, the standard cases in, in the literature are um, where people 
already have the illness in question. Right. So it seems to me like the vaccine, especially in the clear, it is gonna, it's gonna, I'm in faith. I'm, I'm no, 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 you're, <laughs> absolutely, you're, a, you're, a, you're absolutely right. That's one of the halakhic issues. Right, so these, basically, the vac- basically what, the, what the legal, it's the equivalent of like telling somebody they can't go outside without a rain coming on. Isn't that basically the point? That's like the... So... Like, you might catch a cold. So you will see, we'll see that the Chuvas deal with that issue when we get there. So it's a very good question, a very good point. I haven't talked about vaccines yet, other than... No, I just mean from an action-theoretic perspective. Yes. It seems like what we're doing is... Uh, it's, different when you te- it's different when you're preventing disease right. versus uh, curing disease. Like, we allow people... Don't we allow people to take um, their loved one to get off life support? Like, is that... So that's a machlokas. That's a machlokas? That's absolutely machlokas. But that's a separate issue because there you're dealing with someone who is, you know, either a gosses or close to a gosses. Right. So that's a different situation. But let me, just from what we've learned already, before we get to the chuvas, let me tell you this. The Ramah saying you must leave a city when there's Dever Besocho is exactly the same thing as a vaccine. Yeah, you're not sick yet. Right. And the Ramah says very clearly you must leave the city and in fact you must leave the city early. You can't wait. So there you're taking preventive action for, so, for something that you don't have yet. It's preventive. It's not just avoiding, like, um, it's just by, uh, it's like just by, um, by being there. You're not, like, you're not not skiing. No, but right. you've got to leave your house. Right, right, right. And he's saying, halacha, it's a halacha. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. must leave your house. Right. You have to leave your business. You have to shutter your business. You have to leave your house, you have to take your kids out of school, you have to go. Yes? So, what most post-Kim have suggested is there are, there are now, we've reached the point, which we weren't at, let's say, 30, 40 years ago, we've reached a point where in each area of medicine, there are both national and international specialty societies that select their own experts and develop guidelines and criteria. Um, they're updated every few years, but they're considered a consensus. And so um, there's the combination of medical literature which can be reviewed and guidelines issued by panels of experts. And I would say that, therefore, you know, 50 years ago, it's ask whoever somebody told you was a good doctor. Now. There's a much more sophisticated approach to how medical consensus is developed. That's what's sufficient, but what would be considered insufficient for someone who perceives someone else to be one of these people who's sufficient So the as I said, there's always gonna be controversy, just as there's a Das Yachid in Halacha. But the general principle is if there's an overwhelming majority, as Rab, in Rav Moshe's Lashem Kol Harofim, then we follow that consensus. And you can't say, I want to ask, you know, uh, thus and so. And I would say that the simple analogy is, uh, you know, except in unusual circumstances, we don't rely on a Das Yachid. So it, it's very similar to that. You don't ask, you know, one outlier if there's a consensus of experts. What about someone who has knowledge but isn't systemically recognized? Like someone who is a chacham without a degree, 
so there are certainly people who know a lot of medicine without a degree. Uh, but what I'm trying to suggest is it's not based on one individual's opinion. When it's a situation, you know, when you have a complicated individual case um, and you have to apply different fields, then it's a little bit more difficult. But when it's something routine, which there are guidelines, both the medical and halacha consensus appears to be, you can't rely on that individual. You have to follow the overwhelming, you know, it's not necessarily 51%, but when it's 99%, that's where you go. So um, I'll tell you the story now. So when when I first became interested in this a couple of years ago, in my failed effort to uh, do something about it a couple of years ago, um, there's a website that caters to anti-vaxxers, and so they produced a list of physicians who would take care of your children and not suggest vaccination. So there was, at that time, in that collection, there were 17 in the United States. So the 1% is probably pretty accurate. So that's where you can't just say, I, I would suggest that when it's a case where you're dealing with something that's guideline-based, you can't just say, I'm going to find some guy I trust, degree or not, and listen to them. You have to follow the, the consensus. Okay, so let's spend a couple of minutes talking about what vaccines are and then we'll turn to the halacha. So, um, page five has a picture. Maybe it's not a very good picture, but it's a picture. Um, and it describes, we'll start with number two because before we talk about vaccines, we'll describe how the body responds to infections or to foreign objects. So, somewhere around 6 to 24 months, the body develops the ability to distinguish self, which is proteins that you make yourself, from external things, which could be viruses, bacteria, or toxins. Up to six months of age, you rely on maternal antibodies that are transferred via the placenta. Uh, and when the immune system develops, you develop the ability to do something amazing. And here's what's amazing about it. So do you mean six months after conception? Or after birth. After birth. Oh, okay. Yeah, because the, um, there are antibodies that are transferred via cord blood okay. that babies up to six months of age have. Right. No, that's why I said six to 24 months. It, you know, it, it, there's variability, some develops over time. It's completely developed by, tw by 24 months. It's mostly developed by 12 months. Um, but it's, it's, it's something really amazing. And here's what's amazing about it. You know, back, back when I went to school, you used to think of, and I don't know, this may, be, this may be too much high school biology for some of you guys, but I'll do my best. Um, you recall that there's a sequence of DNA that codes for RNA that makes proteins. Proteins are the things that make up much of the body, not all of it, but they're the things that make reactions, that make antibodies and things like that. There's almost an infinite number of foreign substances that the body can be exposed to. So you can't possibly have enough DNA to code for all those, to make proteins, 
that can be antibodies to all those substances. So what the body does is it has different sequences that it splices together in response to each antigen that it's exposed to. And so Hashem created this amazing way that we can respond to essentially an infinite number of foreign substances and fight them. So what happens is when you're exposed to these things that the body recognizes are not self, there's a particular kind of cell called a B lymphocyte that multiplies and then moves into two ways. One is it's got the memory of this, so when you're exposed again to it, you can fight it off more easily. And the second is it moves into cells that make antibodies, which are proteins, which attack and destroy the foreign substance. There's also a second kind of immunity called T-cell immunity, which is not directly related to vaccines, where the cells themselves are essentially killer cells that attack foreign substances and kill them by releasing poisons to those cells. But the thing that's relevant to vaccination is this first response. So what happens in a vaccine is in some way you make the virus or the bacteria not harmful. And on page 7 there's a picture of the many ways you can do that. It's not so important. But the most common ways are killed or weakened organisms. So they still have the proteins in it that develops, they themselves don't cause major damage because they're killed or weakened, but it develops the ability of the body to make antibodies. And on page six, you can see that when you're exposed again to something, you now have this memory of this foreign substance, and very quickly in 24 to 48 hours, you can make an antibody to the foreign substance and react against it. There's a, yes? I'm sorry? So the answer is probably no. I say probably because there's still some research going on in that way, but probably not. You probably need to be exposed to those antigens to develop the antibodies. Um, so, um, there's another way to fight infection, which was actually uh, used in the most recent measles outbreak, which is um, you can give preformed antibodies or gamma globulin. And in Rockland County this year, um, actually, there was a baby that showed up to Rafua, which is one of the social organizations in New Square, that had measles, that wasn't recognized as having measles. And at some point during the day, probably 100 babies were exposed to that child with measles. So they actually called all of them back and administered gamma globulin to them to fight the infection because they were too young to have been immunized. So there is a backup way, but obviously that's much more complicated and much more difficult than um, vaccinating. Um, we don't need to go into the details, but on page 7 there's a description of um, the different phases in vaccine development. And there are really eight different steps before a vaccine is, is used publicly. 
So one more point before we talk about measles per se, which is something called herd immunity. So if somewhere between 80 and 95% of people in a group are vaccinated or immune because they've previously had the disease, that protects the entire group. Now, whether that's always just a numbers game or whether some people can actually develop immunity, like kids who play with each other, if one of the kids gets a va the vaccine, some of that vaccine is excreted, and that may actually produce immunity in kids who play with them and are exposed to that. However it happens, the data are, and this will become important halakhically, the data are that somewhere, somewhere between 80 and 95 percent of a population is immune, it produces herd immunity. Yes? Well, there are oral vaccines, right? There's an oral polio vaccine. So, for technical reasons, though, it doesn't work for everything. And so, I'll just digress here for a second. Um, one of the things about the measles virus, which is fortunate, is that it's a very stable virus. It doesn't change. Um, and so, one of the things you need to develop a universally affected permanent vaccine is that the virus doesn't mutate frequently. So for example, the flu virus changes every year, which is why there's this whole big game where people try to predict what flu strain is going to happen and try to build a vaccine against that flu strain. We actually do that at New York Medical College, but it doesn't always work. Um, AIDS, people have tried to develop an AIDS vaccine for the past 30 years. Um, it doesn't work because the virus is too smart. It mutates too quickly to develop an effective vaccine. Measles, though, um, which um, was first described 1,300 years ago, is an RNA virus which stays the same, which makes it possible to vaccinate against. As I mentioned, this is not... Um, 100,000 people die each year of measles. This is not a trivial problem. Um, it's transmitted by the respiratory route, meaning coughing, breathing, and so on. Um, the virus spreads in two phases over about a week, and then it's about 10 to 12 days before you develop clinical symptoms. So the problem with controlling measles is, from the time you're exposed to the time you get visibly ill, can be more than a week. And during that time, you can infect everybody around you. So control measures, particularly in schools, don't work very well. Um, fever, cough, eye problems, and then uh, a rash. And then in somewhere around 1 in 500 to 1 in 1,000 cases, there's evidence of permanent, permanent neurologic damage. The people at highest risk are those under five years old. If you look at the figure on page nine, you'll see that the vaccine is really pretty effective. It averaged about 500,000 cases a year in the United States before the vaccine, and it went down to almost zero um, after the vaccine. 
And in 2000, there were only 86 cases, and for the next decade, it was probably similar, under 100 cases a year, and most of those were people who came from afar. The vaccine is a live virus, so there are some side effects. It's about 95% effective. It's given in two doses, one at 12 to 15 months and one at four to six years, because um, the second dose can sometimes be more effective. It's done that way for convenience. You really could give the second dose at a year and a half as well. Now, there are some side effects to the vaccine. It's given as a joint vaccine with mumps and rubella. Um, but the, the serious side effects, low platelets and brain damage, are very, very rare. Um, so this is a case, we talked about consensus opinions. This is a case where the consensus opinions have made it clear that it's far safer to have the vaccine than to risk getting the disease. The place actually which is halakhically more complicated is the polio vaccine because there have been no cases of polio in the United States um, for the past couple of decades, even though there are still pockets of polio worldwide. And there the halakhic issues are more complicated, but as we'll see, according to most poskim, it's no different. Um, one of the problems with a widely administered vaccine and relying on anecdotes is that you can get a false impression for what happens. So, um, how many people drive? Uh, how many people drive in cars in the United States each day? Two hundred fifty million. Good guess. I don't know what the real number is. It's not important. Uh, Two hundred fifty million. Um, so, suppose somebody rode in a car last week and now was diagnosed with skin cancer. Would you conclude? that riding in a car causes skin cancer. That would be ridiculous, right? Yes? There is a study that says that truckers, <laughs> truckers who drive for very for their whole lives actually develop more skin cancer on the left side of their face than the right side because their left side is closer to the window. That's true. But it doesn't have to do with... It's a very good point. And, <laughs> and there are studies about people flying in planes because the ionizing radiation is higher, have a slightly higher incidence of cancer. Yeah. However... That means I don't have to go home for Absolutely. <laughs> Except that we already talked about halachic risk taking. So if it's something that people normally do, even though there are risks. I don't think those people are normal. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you could, you know, you make believe you're John Madden, but it's hard to get from uh, Israel to the United States. Do you know who John Madden is? No. He's like the, is that like the video game? No, he's, he, yes, but he's a, fo a football announcer who refuses to fly. So he has a bus <laughs> that, that drives everywhere between games. So the football game's on Sunday, he gets in his bus, and wherever he has to go, he... Uh, How does he get to Martha's Vineyard? Uh, he's not that kind of a guy. He's a more, he's a more like uh, Nashville kind of guy. In any case... It's a former coach. In any case, um, the point is that, uh, so what does this have to do with measles? So the, the, the anti-vaccination movement was strongly pushed by this idea that the MMR vaccine causes autism. Now, what you have to understand is that autism is always diagnosed beginning at about 18 months. The vaccine is given at 12 to 15 months. 
So yes, there was, of the millions of people who got the measles vaccine, somebody got the measles vaccine and developed autism. But the fact is, the paper which first suggested this relationship was real has been thoroughly debunked. The guy lost his license, the guy who wrote the paper, Wakefield, and in fact, there's now evidence that he was being paid by drug companies that made therapy for, for, for measles to try to uh, encourage the disease to take hold. Whether that's really true or not, you know, it might just be an urban legend, but the, pro but the bottom line is there is no evidence that the vaccine has anything to do with autism. And that's been thoroughly looked at in multiple ways. So if we look at the medical literature, the medical consensus is quite clear. Yes, there are a few outliers, but it's accurately described in reference 13, uh, you know, that this is, this anti-vaccination movement is just non-scientific, exposes the public to safety concerns, and has no basis in reality. So what about the halachic issue of vaccines? Because as has been correctly pointed out, it's a little bit more complicated than some of the medical issues that were previously dealt with. So the controversy, of course, relates to a letter and subsequently another letter written by uh, some of the members of the Moetzes Agud in the United States. The first letter is on page 14. Um, it's a mischaracterization of the Supreme Court decision, by the way but that's a separate issue. And the particular halachic issue that was being dealt with here is whether a school could refuse to accept not vaccinated ch children. In the subsequent letter, which has 10 signatories, including a third person from the Moetzes, um, it said that the, the basis is that the risk of getting measles was very, very, very low and therefore the vaccine was not required, maybe even, according to some interpretations, not advisable. Um, the OU and the RCA issued a statement urging parents to vaccinate themselves, but not explicitly saying that it's absolutely halakhically required, but they did say that most postgames support vaccination of children. Ravasha Weiss, in reference 14, goes further. He says the following. It's, you, it's an obligation because of the mitzvah saseh and lo saseh for parents to vaccinate their children. And parents can organize themselves and force schools not to accept students who are not vaccinated. And I'll explain the sources. Um, there's also, this question is also, can be extended to what about shul? Would you allow someone, a child who's not vaccinated, into the playgroup at shul? Also complicated. He's saying the idea of accepting vaccines as appropriate this is not a new Shiloh. The smallpox vaccine was invented in the 1700s by Edward Jenner, and he's referred to in the Tiferes Yisrael as a chassid and someone who left schar in olam haba because he invented the smallpox vaccine. 
Um, and he, at that time, he specifically dealt with the question, this is the 1700s when the vaccines were more dangerous. He specifically dealt with the question of what about the side effects of vaccines? And he said that because the danger of not being vaccinated is greater than the danger of being vaccinated, you must be vaccinated. Shlomo Zalman Orbach said that when you're dealing with fighting disease that's potentially life-threatening, it's mutter for the same reason that you can expose yourself to risk in a war that's a mitzvah, Mulchemes mitzvah. Now, Rav Asher Weiss says that this is a bit of a leap, but he nonetheless says, quotes Rosh Lomo Zalman Orbach, as saying that that's actually a reason that one can expose himself to risks of medical therapy. Now, Asher Weiss continues, and by the way, this is not his entire tshuva, I just selected pieces of it. Asher Weiss continues to talk about the issue of herd immunity, which is, can you say I won't vaccinate my child because everybody else is vaccinated? And he has two halachic arguments for why that's not appropriate. So even if there's a situation where everybody has to do something to protect themselves, and one individual can opt out. It's illegal, halachically osur, for that one person to opt out. An individual can't do what's osur for everybody else. So that benefiting from herd immunity is osur. And he says, in addition, there's chova v'shtasvus kol b'ni'ir b'shmira se'ir b'tikun chomoseha. Everybody has to participate in shmira. Everybody has to participate in protecting the city. Even though, of course, if one person opted out, the wall would still be there. You can't rely on others. So based on this, Usher Weiss says that you cannot rely on herd immunity, which, of course, the real problem, which he doesn't mention here, um, is that you can't be sure you're the only one who's going to rely on herd immunity, and we've seen examples recently with hundreds of kids getting measles where, because everybody relied on herd immunity, the herd immunity was gone. So the last reference here is Reshpam 17, which is, is too long to discuss in detail. A post-secondary Israel responded to Rav Makiel Cutler's letter, and if we just look at page 17, three lines from the bottom, in conclusion, since it is proven that vaccines are effective, it is an obligation upon every father to vaccinate his children and prevent the spread of disease, as is the law of Torah to follow the majority view of experts. Certainly here where the view of the overwhelming majority of doctors and the boards of health are that one should vaccinate it, the administration of schools may demand that those children that were not vaccinated not enter the Talmud Torah. And he says this applies to Eretz Yisrael, but if it's relevant, it should be used in the United States as well, in Chutzlaretz. And he concludes by saying, by doing this, um, we'll fulfill the Pasuk, Vahasi Rosi Machla Mikirbecha. And 
the halachic reasoning he uses is very much what we've gone over, um, that pikuach nefesh is a mitzvah. You can't smoke and expose other people to it, and so on. So the last piece of here is living healthy. So part of the um, sort of impetus behind the anti-vaccination movement was the idea that if we just live naturally with natural substances, everything will be fine. And um, so there are people who believe this, and somehow this is a part of our community has globbed onto this. But it's not scientific and not evidence-based. So this idea that taking supplements and avoiding traditional therapy is somehow healthy is not really based on any data. GNC, this chain in the United States, makes about $10 billion a year selling stuff that has been repeatedly shown in trials of 50 to 100,000 people not to have any benefit. And the post have said that you can't rely on that stuff when the consensus of experts is that vaccinations are beneficial and that the benefits far outweigh the risks. So I'll be happy to answer any questions at this point. Yes? So can you more address why, like, Claridium think that it's okay not to vaccinate their kids? So I think there are uh, three reasons. So one is there's natural skepticism of established science, which has... Dean Sokol pointed out earlier this week is a little paradoxical because the Haredim sort of look for the best expert when someone gets sick they accept medical therapy but nonetheless there's an obvious skepticism about science and so that skepticism of science has allowed them to sort of be influenced by those who are skeptics that's one factor a second factor is purely incidental this whole thing started because there was a kid in Philadelphia who got autism and Shmuel Kamenetsky's wife happened to know the kid very well and the family very well. And so Makir Hutler's wife got involved. And that's actually how the whole thing started. Um, you know, and, and the final thing is that um, while there are certainly, and I'll try to say this carefully, while there are certainly some absolute geniuses who are there, some of them are names we've mentioned. Um, the level of scientific sophistication of the community as a whole is not high, which makes it hard to evaluate scientific data properly when you're exposed to kind of different things. And so that's where uh, I think uh, it kind of develops. But it's an interesting sociological question. I don't have a definitive answer. As yet, they haven't reversed their position, but the community is now, in response to this latest outbreak, taking action. And there are many schools, even in Philadelphia and Lakewood, that won't accept children. Most schools won't accept children that aren't vaccinated. Do we know what Shalom thinks? No. Got to wait, I guess. Huh? We'll have to wait, I guess. <laughs> All right. So it's great to see everybody. Thank you.